Listener Production. Chloe Fisher married her now husband, Grammy-nominated DJ Fisher, in 2020. It was on their wedding night that Chloe fell pregnant for the first time. She would miscarry shortly afterwards. It was from that point that Chloe, also a model, Instagram influencer and entrepreneur, decided to use her platform to give voice to people who had also lost pregnancies. Along with her friend and co-host, Elodie Pullen, they've created a community of listeners who support one another through their fertility journeys. Only 31 years old, Chloe has now been through seven rounds of IVF. She is determined, one way or another, to become a parent. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, Bron joins me for The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here is my conversation with Chloe Fisher. Chloe Fisher, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for being here, especially bright and early in the new year. It is such a pleasure to meet you. I want to begin at the beginning because you have a whole lot of strings to your bow and I want to get into all of them. But tell me about you as a kid and what your version was of Chloe the adult. Wow, what a question. It is early for that one. <laughs> I had a pretty normal upbringing. I'm, I'm one of four kids, so I lived on the northern beaches. I grew up there, mum and dad all at home. And yeah, I mean, we we lived a pretty normal life. We went to high school. I loved school. I was a bit of a nerd, loved all that. Yeah, it was pretty chill. We we lived pretty low-key life. And then I've now moved up to the Gold Coast. I got married three years ago um, to my wonderful husband, Paul. Um, and yeah, so we've been living up here ever since, basically, yeah, for the last three years. But on top of that, we travel all over the world for his work. He's a DJ. So yeah, we we live half in the Gold Coast, half in LA, half in, well, I guess you wouldn't call it half, in, in Ibiza. So yeah, we're here, there, everywhere, all year round. Tell me about how you met him. We actually met in Bali, I think 13 years ago, um, in Poppy's Lane at a bar like called Alley Cats. Um, yeah, we met, I was, I think 20, he was like 27. And yeah, we basically, it was just one of those love at first sight, as corny as that sounds. We Yeah, we've pretty much been together ever since. He lived in the States at that time and I lived in Australia. I'm like, this is never going to work. This is just, I don't know, introduced him to my family and everything like that. And I was like, how is this going to? And then I ended up just like kind of quitting everything over here in Australia. I was working in advertising. Um, it was ACP magazines back then. That It was just when it was the conversion was happening into Bauer Media. And I quit my job there and just took the leap of love over to LA. <laughs> so tell me about your decision to try and have children. Well, I personally have wanted kids forever. Like honestly, since I can remember, um, I've like, if you ask any of my girlfriends through school, it was always like, yep, yeah, we actually did a time capsule. My girlfriends and I, like it was eight years ago, I think. And we actually just opened it up. We found it and opened it up on the podcast the other day. And it was like, who's going to be first to have kids? And every single one's like, Chloe, Chloe, Chloe. So I've always naturally been, wanted to be a mother. I like, I still say this to this day, like my purpose in life is to be a mother, always have, always wanted to. So we were always on the road. I never actually, I was never on the pill pretty much the whole time we've been together, never practiced any sort of like safe sex. We just 
you know, did our thing. And I never actually fell pregnant. And I never really thought it was a thing. It never raised alarm bells for me because I actually thought I was like, maybe it is harder than what you think, you know? We're both dying to have a baby. But it wasn't until the last few years that it's really like hit home. And we we got married actually in February of 2020 and we fell pregnant at our wedding. Like it was just, we're like, wow, that was so easy. How good. Like this is just like the fairy tale story. This is just amazing. And then I had uh, my first miscarriage in March of 2020. And it wasn't until after that that I began to realize that I had some, there was something going on because we then tried for nearly 12 months to have a baby and doing all the right things, doing all the timings, everything like that. And then it wasn't working. And my co-host in at my podcast, Darling Shine, um, Elodie, she and her partner, Chumpy, were also trying at the same time. And we both live up here together, best mates. And we were kind of going through this journey together. And at the same time, all of our friends back home in Sydney were all having babies and everyone was, it was just like very easy for a lot of them. Yeah. Um, so we were like, what's going on? And her doctor was actually, she was, Elodie was actually a few steps ahead of me in the sense that she actually went to saw a GP and was like, why are we not falling pregnant? What's going on? And her GP, which we actually have the same GP, we share a lot of things. We, the GP was like, we should do these, a full set of bloods. We did the blood tests and her bloods came back. It was, it's a test called an AMH and it tests your ovarian egg, like your reserve of like how many eggs you've got. And it came back super, super low. And that was, and she's like, I think you're going to have to do IVF. So they were about to start doing IVF when sadly Elodie lost her partner. Um, And then that kind of triggered me to also go and get my eggs checked and, well, my numbers checked and my number came back at like 2.1. And for someone who's, I was 29 at the time, it should be like in the 30s. I think a lot of people don't realise, right, that you you were born with your full egg supply and it depletes over your lifetime. Yes. Fast forward to nearly coming up to three years, we've had three miscarriages. My most recent one was in February of last year was with twin boys. And, you know, it's crazy because I guess that's how this my podcast came about because we were like, why is no one talking about this stuff? You think that you can just look at a, your partner and have sex and you'll fall pregnant and it just doesn't work like that, like for most, you know. And when Elodie lost her partner back in 2020, they were about to go down the IVF route as well and they, they, she, you know, they really wanted this baby and we were actually able to retrieve his sperm when he passed away. Wow. I went into IVF thinking, oh, yeah, well, it's just going to work. You do IVF and it's going to work. Never in a million years would I imagine be sitting here three years later going, oh, I've just done my seventh round of IVF that didn't work. Like you just don't think that. You think you're going to go do IVF, you're going to pay for IVF and you're going to get a baby. And it just, for me, it hasn't worked like that, unfortunately. And that's where it's all, this is kind of, our podcast has kind of evolved from because we would find ourselves like Elodie and I sitting on the couch crying going, why is no one talking about this stuff? Like Elle's grieving so hard with the loss of her partner. I'm going, pulling my hair out, going like, why can't I fall pregnant? Why is this not working? I'm doing IVF. What? Like there was just so much going on and we're like, we need to talk, we need to talk about this. Why is this not spoken about? And especially for me personally, like I'm such a strong advocate for miscarriage now because it happens to so many women and they suffer in silence and it actually breaks my heart so much to think about 
people going through this without having a support network. And I guess that's where we come into play and we really want to be that support network for those people. Yeah. And look, um, Listo is so excited to be having Darling Shine become part of the network and it'll be something that more and more of the listeners here on the weekend briefing will be able to uh, access as well. Chloe, can you take me back a little bit to that first miscarriage? You mentioned how little women talk about it. Do you think there's also an element of not having much information? I'm wondering what you knew at that point. Oh, a hundred percent. Honestly, like you go through school and you don't learn about this stuff. And I just like, it baffles me because I'm thinking, why are we not taught this? And I I was aware of miscarriage. I I know that my mom had a miscarriage between, I believe it was me and my brother. um, And I've known of some people, but you just really never think that it's going to happen to you. But then in hindsight, one in four women go through miscarriages. So that's so, so common. But when it happened to us, we we had just actually, so we got married. When we're in Bali, we, my grandma actually passed away two days after my wedding in Bali. It was just like suddenly, it was just hectic. We've had to deal with all that, come home. And then we actually were the first ones. We actually went straight to LA because my husband had to work, but I didn't know I was pregnant all, at, at all this time. So my body was going through so much, just so much going on, so much stress. And we were actually that first flight back into Australia because COVID hit. Yeah. And we had to do quarantine. So I was in quarantine going, oh my goodness, I've just found out that I'm pregnant. And then eventually, I think it was about seven weeks when I miscarried and it was, it was traumatizing because you're just like, what do I do? Who do I speak to? Do I, do I talk about this publicly? Like I had a platform like on, on Instagram already just through my travels with my husband and like all that sort of stuff. So I was like, what am I going to do here? You know, you go in, you go into the day surgery with this little, your life basically in your belly and you come out with nothing and you just feel like there's a hole. You, you basically come out and there's something missing. And the first time I spoke about it, I was like, do I want to talk about this? Because not many people talk about it. No one knows about it. Men, like men have no idea. And even some women, like and most of our friends and our family and all that, like everyone's very educated now because it's, you know, I talk about it a lot, but you feel very alone. And I still, to this day, feel super alone because we've like, you know, it's happened once and then it happened again and then it happened again. And you're like, by the third time I've been like, you have got to be kidding me. Like surely, surely not, surely not can't be this, like I can't be this unlucky, surely not. I'm thinking about that experience of not only yourself, but also the people around you, your partner, Mm. your friends and family. And I think in times of shock and grief and loss, people don't know what to say. Mm. And so they either say something really silly or they say nothing. What did help or what would have helped from the people around you at, at that point? It's such a hard one because, and I think it's evolved so much from my first miscarriage to now because I'm so aware of like what I need and what, you know, what to is say and what not to say. And it's just like the most common one I think that people say, and that one is the one that kills me so much is like, at least you're young. Like anything that starts oh. with at least, don't oh. say it. It's just like a big no-no because yeah, like, that's no, a no, great no, advice. That, that, that little embryo or that little baby inside your belly, the that's your everything that still existed. And I just don't feel like it's not like people don't, 
for for the amount of weeks that it's in your belly, that's your world, and and people just don't understand. Like I, yeah, it's so it's so hard, and I always say like unless you've gone through a miscarriage, you just really it's really hard to understand exactly how how the woman feels. But yeah, I think like just as a stock standard rule, just don't say anything that starts with at least or like you know at least you can try again. Or sometimes people have got babies like actual babies and it's happened after that it's like well at least you've got so-and-so and like you know and I think it's just really hard as well for partners I feel I feel for them because they they obviously want to be there and Paul is so amazing such an amazing support to me but again I look at him and I'm like my god I'm so I feel so guilty you know as a woman you know you're put on this earth and you to have babies and to you know, you feel a level of pressure. You feel like a level of pressure. And I feel for my family, like I, my mom and my dad and my siblings, like I feel like I'm ripping them off of being like grandparents and, you know, aunties and uncles. And it's just like, it's such a weird feeling. And I think the longer that it's going on for me, the harder it's actually getting. Cause I like, I'm so close with my family and I feel really difficult to actually talk to them about it now because. I feel so guilty and I just get so sad and so upset because it's just like, God, like how, yeah. I And now I'm at this point where I'm like, when is this ever going to happen? Slash, is it going to happen? You know, I've just, um, I know I will have a baby at some point. I'm 31 now, I'm 32 this year, but it's just like, I think the longer you go through IVF, the more you, because at the start, people like will suggest like donor eggs and surrogacy and adoption and all that. And like at the start, I feel like, you know, you've it's very off cards and you're like, no way, like I need to have my mm. own baby. But the longer you go on it, like it's, it's the emotional pain that you, and like, it's, it's like a mental game at that point, because I think like physically I'm completely fine. I'm healthy. I've done pretty much all the tests you can do everything's come back normal apart from my low egg my low egg count but you know I think at this point in time I'm like open to surrogacy while I do have like just a few eggs left I like I have a few frozen here in Australia and I have two frozen in LA but I just did a last round of IVF in December of last year and I got zero embryos out and I'm like the whole time I'm like you know at least I'm getting one to the end or two to the end some people get nothing and that actually happened and that was like a big stab in the gut and I was like, whoa, this is serious. And that's when people say to me, at least you're young, that means absolutely nothing because it's not going to get me any more my eggs back. I just don't, like, I'm just like, nah, don't say that to me. It's a lot. You've talked a lot about the emotional impact of IVF and that sense of, I think, building and building and building hope and then potentially being very disappointed mm. again and again and not knowing when it will end is is hard mm. to comprehend. But can you talk me through, if you feel comfortable, the physical impact? Because I think sometimes we gloss over the physical impact of IVF and yeah. what what's required to harvest eggs and that process. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I feel like I'm lucky in a sense that like, I don't really get affected by the medication. So for me, because I, 
Most people when they do IVF will do one round, like well, they'll do their round and they will get enough eggs or embryos to freeze and then they just put them in when when they need to put them in. But for me, because I've got this low egg count, I'm actually not getting enough eggs out. So I say that I have done seven rounds. That's seven full cycles of needles. Wow. I've actually kept all my needles. I'm crazy. I'm like, I can't throw them out until I get a baby because I need to be like, honestly, if you could, I've got like, 15 or 20 boxes of full like sharp jars of needles but basically it like the only thing that really affects me like it doesn't really affect my moods I'm pretty good at doing the needles like apart from like my arms at the moment are just like black and blue from like blood tests and my poor stomach's like so bruised oh. but yeah physically I'm actually okay it, the only thing that annoys me and frustrates me a little bit is I like I don't really do too much exercise when I'm doing it just because I really don't want to mess anything up or like overexert my body. And I do miss training, like doing personal training or like, you know, group training and stuff like that. I do miss doing that. But yeah, physically, I'm okay. It's more like emotionally and mentally at this point now because I'm just like, I feel even when I do get that positive pregnancy, like I pee on a stick and it's positive, I'm like, there's no excitement there because I'm just petrified that I'm going to miscarry again. So essentially I feel like, and other women who are going through this as well and that have done multiple failed rounds, like they would feel that as well in the sense, you know, you, you, you just, you're just so nervous that you're going to go to the toilet and there's going to be blood or you like, it's just oh. where, at what point, I don't know. I just, I just don't feel like I'm ever going to be able to be a hundred percent relaxed and ex- or chill until I get the baby in my arms at the end of the day I think it's just like it sucks because you know when you're growing you're up you're just of like the joy of pregnancy yeah and yeah. like that's all like I mean I obviously I want a baby at the end but like my one of my like dreams is to be pregnant like I want to have that belly I want to birth a baby I want to but you know if I can't do that then I've come to the realization that that might not be for me um but I won't ever give up. Like I will continue to keep trying until I really can't do it anymore. Tell me about your friendship with Elodie and how that has perhaps helped both of you um, through going through some really complex processes around IVF and um, supporting Elodie through the passing of her husband as well. Yeah, so Elle and I went to school together. We've kind of known each other since probably grade nine and we both lived in Sydney and then Elodie and and Chumpy, her partner, moved up here to the Gold Coast maybe a year or two before we moved up here. We've always been quite close but since Elodie's partner passed away, we've really honestly become super reliant on each other because like she's got like what Elodie has gone through is just like so horrific and obviously you would wish it upon absolutely no one and I just had to be there for her every step of the way and like you know and then we've obviously gone through IVF together it's funny because none of our friends had really gone through IVF either so it just like it was a really strange one that we just ended up both up here on the Gold Coast together we both had fertility issues going on Elodie did um when they harvested Chumpy's sperm it was like a one they they were giving it like a one percent chance of it actually getting them actually getting sperm that was going to be viable, which is crazy. And so when they did that, they were able to get, she's got three, she got three embryos to the end and the first round of IVF for her didn't work. And then the second round of IVF was actually my first round. We were all doing it at the same time. And then 
her second round turned into um, little mini. She's the best thing ever. Um, she's my goddaughter and she honestly, I don't know what I would do without mini. She, and I think as well, like for my journey too, I like, although what I've gone through is, it sucks. Like I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy. And it's just like, I just can't even put it into words. But in like the bigger picture, I always look at it and I, in a sense, I'm like, mate, you know, there's, there's a, there has to be a reason for this. And I think that like a part of that reason was like when Elodie gave birth to Minnie, it's given me two years to really be there by her side and like help. Like, you know, they say it takes a tribe and, you know, Paul and I have really stepped up into that little godparent um, role. And we are so like, honestly, we're so obsessed with that kid. I personally wouldn't be able to go through my journey without Elle by my side. And I hope that she would say the same about me. Well, that is a really beautiful thing to say. And I think will make people even more interested to listen to your podcast, Darling Shine, because I think uh, two women creating community together that is born of their own friendship sounds particularly poignant and I can't wait to have a listen. Thank you so much for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That's it for my conversation with Chloe Fisher. If our conversation about miscarriage has brought up anything for you, then you should absolutely seek some support. You can call SANS 24-7 on 1300 308 307. Of course, you can also get the new season of Darling Shine on the Listener app now or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't go away. The Weekend List is coming up next. It is weekend list time. Bron is here. We are well and truly into the new year now, Bron, which means I need something to get me through being back at work and not at the beach anymore. I've got a whole lot of time on my hands. What should I be watching, reading, listening, cooking, doing? Well, my first one is Breakpoint on Netflix. It's a Netflix documentary all about tennis, very timely for the Australian Open that is still on. Um, wrapping up tomorrow, actually, um, made by the same people that, uh, created the TV show drive to survive, which got everyone suddenly into F1, uh, in the last few years. But, um, yeah, there's only five episodes out at the moment. It goes behind the scenes and gives you insight into like the training schedule of the players, how they prepare for matches. Um, it was all filmed during last year's, um, grand slam. So they mainly focus on, you know, young up and coming talent, um, and yet in the 2022 finals. And it gives you some more appreciation for the sport, like what the athletes go through. I don't know. Sports documentaries just make me really emotional for some reason, but I just loved it. And what a more perfect time to watch it than when the Australian Open is on. And they've actually got a second round of eps coming up in June as well. It's like a two-parter with a bit of a yeah break in the middle. So some more episodes coming up in a few months. The hardest thing in sports is expectation. We've been blessed with an era of greatness. Roger, Rafa, Serena, Novak. Who will take their place? I want to be number one in the world. Amazing. I've got to say, I also love a sports docker. Even if I'm not interested in that particular sport. Yes. It's kind of weird. 
I want to recommend a book. This is my favorite of my summer reads. I read a bunch over the break, which is something I'm not very good at doing during the year when I'm working. And so I'm recommending them one by one for you folks. I want to recommend All That's Left Unsaid by Tracy Lien. Uh, it was endorsed by Leanne Moriarty and Alice Pung. And I feel like that should just tell you enough because those two are extraordinary. It is the story of a young woman called Kai Tran. And Kai Tran's younger brother, Denny, has been killed in Cabramatta in the 90s in a Sydney suburb uh, that was, I think, quite famous in the 90s because of a quite indifferent police force around the uh, treatment of the Vietnamese population there. And there was also a terrible heroin epidemic going on in that area at the time. So Kai's brother is killed. She returns home to be with her parents and she ends up investigating the murder herself. She's a journalist and she feels like the police aren't doing enough and she starts talking to the people who were there on the night he was murdered because none of them will talk to the police. It is so beautifully written. It is so well told and it is really evocative of I think a particular time in Australia's history. You're talking kind of peak early Pauline Hanson time highly recommend. It is uh, beautiful and I sobbed through it. Oh, wow. My next one is a film called The Menu. I watched it on Disney Plus, but I believe it is still playing in some cinemas around the country. It's a dark comedy slash horror film. Um, I don't know how to describe it, but it the cast is amazing. It's got Raph Fiennes in it. It's as a celebrity chef. It's Ooh. got Anya Taylor-Joy, who was in The Queen's Gambit. Yes. It's about this young couple that goes to this extremely fancy restaurant called Hawthorne on this secluded island, um, surrounded by these like rich elite guests. The film takes a dark turn as they're going through this tasting menu and it becomes a little bit gory at points. Um, I don't want to get into all the twists and turns because it is like a bit of a surprise, but it is shot so beautifully. It has you hooked from the moment because you can tell not everything is as it seems at the beginning. And I just loved it. I devoured it. it it's, it's like a good timed movie, which I love. It doesn't go for harp on for too long. It's just action the whole time. And yeah, I was hooked. I loved it. That sounds really good. I'm about to go um, a little darker. <laughs> I feel, I've just realised that both my recommendations today, everyone, are a little bit, um, a little bit grim, but at the same time, also have a, like a beautiful thread of hope through them. So I promise they are, they are both uh, uh, pieces of creative work that are worth sticking with because they have really. Um, really heartwarming endings. I want to recommend The Swimmers, which is currently on Netflix. It's a film, but it is based on the true story of two young women, Yusra and Sara Madini, who were refugees from Syria, who were both pursuing swimming careers in their home country when their country was torn apart by war. And they decide to uh, attempt uh, to migrate to Europe, as millions of fellow refugees have done. The film largely focuses on their incredible journey, uh, which includes nights and days spent on the tiniest of boats with um, dozens of other people. That includes them moving through multiple countries, hiding in the back of vans, um, jumping over fences. What they do to seek freedom and safety, ultimately in Germany, is incredible. And then Yusra continues to fight once she arrives in Germany to make that dream that she's always had of swimming at the Olympics happen. And spoiler alert, she she does, folks. Um, it is 
so well told. It is so moving. I watched it alone sitting in bed. I couldn't stop even though it was really, really late at night. I just had to know how it ended. Um, and then the next day I got up and made everyone else in my house watch it the next night. I heard you both had to escape a war. We're forming an Olympic refugee team for real. We have a lot of work to do. You should do it. You're so much more than an Olympian. Ready? Swim for me. For everyone who died trying to find a new life. Swim for all of us. And that is it for the weekend briefing for today. Thank you so much for being with us, everyone. We have so enjoyed having your company. If you would like to make sure that you never miss an episode of the briefing or the weekend briefing, then the best thing to do is to download the listener app and you can follow us there. Otherwise, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back on Monday morning, bright and early, when Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.